0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: It was some new cop who said to me, he read my form and it just sounded like the guy was an ass and offered me a ride home. And I was really surprised by that. and And more than anything, I felt really hopeless because I thought, well, if I'm not believed by the cops, then I don't, I don't have another option. I've done the most extreme thing. This is, this is what I thought was betrayal to the guy. Um, this was me being vulnerable and nothing, nothing happened. And, and that really needs to change because, because you're going to have these victims who are going to be afraid to tell their stories and, to be honest about what's going on. So they're not going to come forward. And then you're going to have more instances of injuries, both emotional and physical. I mean, there is so much abuse that goes on emotionally in these relationships that I think can be a lot more damaging than the physical abuse.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
3: Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry?
1: Thank you so much for having me on today. I am thrilled to be here.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying uh, before we hit record here, I found out about your work because you wrote in. But uh, as always, with guests I picked, there's some method to this madness, which is only my curiosity. And you know, I read your About page, and I think two things really struck me. One is that you actually host a podcast with your mom, and two is that you have this immense love for horses. And I'm always obsessed with people who are either good or obsessed with unusual things. Um, But before we get into all of that, I want to start asking you, what did your parents do for work, uh, and how did that end up? influence and shaping what you've ended up doing with your life and your career?
1: It's been a pretty direct correlation. So my parents actually met when they were talk show hosts at the same radio station. Um, My dad's been at the same station now for more than 50 years. And my mom started working there when she was 18. So they met, they fell in love, they continued hosting radio shows. And somewhere along the way, I caught the bug. And I was trying to resist it for so long, but couldn't do it.
2: How old were you when that happened?
1: When I first started to get into broadcasting myself? Yeah. Um, I would always go on my dad's show for Take Your Daughter to Work Day from the time (laughs) I was maybe six on. And I would go on there with my sister. She would do the vast majority of the talking because I was painfully shy. But I got interested in doing a show of my own, actually, just a few years ago, uh, maybe within the last four or five years.
2: So while you were growing up, I mean, anybody who does a creative career knows that it's, you know, fraught with uncertainty, no guarantees. Uh, Did your parents actually encourage this or did they, you know, suggest something more practical? And I mean, for your dad to have had the same job working at the same radio station for 50 years, that to me is is somebody who is committed to craft in a way that so few people are, because I mean, 50 years nowadays is a lifetime. I mean, you know, I, I always come back to what Sam Altman said in his startup school, where he said, you know, founders go into startups thinking that they're going to, you know, basically, you know, build this company um, and exit in three to four years and go count their cash on a beach somewhere. But he said the reality is a long term view is your greatest competitive advantage. And he defined a long term view as 10 years. And your dad has had a 50 year career. That's crazy in one field.
1: And I think I grew up feeling like that was normal. That's what's so crazy is now that I've gotten to be older and I grew up in the hub of the dot-com world and Silicon Valley. And I realize how crazy that is that most of my friends are with companies for a couple of years, or like you said, for the most 10 years, but my dad's had this incredibly long career in the same field for the st- same radio station. And that's not normal. And that's something that is definitely commendable. So the older I get, the more I appreciate that. Um, but, but, you know, I don't think that they really pushed me one way or the other into broadcasting, you would think that they would have pushed me towards it. That that would have been my guess, just because both of them did it. Um but but they didn't necessarily do that. I think they wanted me to be a more outgoing person. And I think they thought in a sense that trying to be on the radio or do some sort of broadcasting would be a way for me to come out of my shell. And I guess eventually it was.
2: Yeah. You know, what What did they teach you when you're growing up about craft and commitment um, and how did your perception of what they taught you change with age? Because I think it's one thing for somebody to tell a kid, you know, hey, you know, 10,000 hours, whatever it is. And of course, you know, you end up with overly ambitious helicopter parents, too, as a byproduct Mm -hmm, of that. mm -hmm. Um, But I I wonder, you know, that same advice would land differently with age, right? Uh, And so I wonder, the things they have taught you about craft, um, particularly in in the arts and this given field of broadcasting, uh, what did they teach you when you were younger? And how did your perception of that change with age?
1: My parents, for as much as they were in the same field and involved in really the same topic of trying to talk about current events, had a very different approach to what they did. So I think I learned the craft in a couple of different ways. And that my mom was always really hands-on. And she was the person who was wanting to do hours and hours of research and write out questions. Whereas my dad was somebody who enjoyed watching the news and reading online to find out the latest things going on in politics or celebrity gossip. And he just kind of have these ideas off the top of his head. He wouldn't write things down. So I got to see two different approaches and it worked well for both of them. And then when I decided to get involved in broadcasting and went to both of them to see, hey, what advice would you have? I found that I was naturally drawn a lot more towards my mom's way of thinking because it made me feel like I couldn't get stumped. If I had everything written down and if I knew everything about a person I would be in a much better situation and that would make me less anxious. But when I went to my first interview, I was so nervous. I did the interview at my dad's radio station in San Francisco um, and showed up with I don't know, three pages of single-spaced questions for this guest for a half an hour interview. And (laughs) it was it was crazy. And I went into the room and I'm setting everything up to do the interview and my dad comes in and I was like, hey, what advice would you have? Like, do you want to see if what I wrote is okay? And he looks at my papers and he tore them up in front of me. And he's like, now you're ready to go. And I I cried at the time. I, I was like, oh my God, what did you just do? What did you just do? And that was very extreme, what he did. And I definitely wouldn't thank him for that. But at the same time, I think about that example all the time to remind me that I don't need to rely on what is written and that I, I pretty much have the answers and have the questions because I've done my research and I don't need to rely on a piece of paper. Um, but I also learned so much from my mom about how to do the engineering for the show. And my dad at this point still doesn't know the first thing about that. After that many years in the industry, he he wouldn't <laughs> he wouldn't have a clue how to adjust volumes or, or even press play and record. So (laughs) I'm lucky that my mom knew all that.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have to ask about, you know, the kind of chemistry that happens on air with two people so much so that they end up getting married. Like what in the world led to that?
1: You know, I hear different versions of this story (laughs) all the time. Um, They actually didn't have a show together. They worked opposite shifts on the radio station with my mom working morning drive and my dad worked nights. So I think they would just kind of pass each other. And apparently they were the only two somewhat young people at the station. Like I mentioned, my mom was 18 when she started. And I know she was 19 when she met my dad and my dad was 30. Um, and I guess they just had some sort of chemistry and the same sense of humor that drew that drew them to each other. And they didn't date for the first year, I believe. They were just good friends. And then one thing led to another. And uh, yeah, they they got married. They had two kids. And even now you can see that they still have that banter back and forth and uh, just kind of a spark that, that is unique.
2: So I have to ask, what do you think it is that makes that kind of a spark last for so long? Uh, I'm curious because this is a subject that I've researched endlessly and I'm still single. So this is just out of Mm -hmm. personal morbid curiosity.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask this. (laughs) I've been trying to figure that out myself as well. I think that what they have going that so many people are lacking is that they have well, one thing is a shared history at this point, which I think makes a big difference. And I know we all can't start with that. So maybe that's not the answer you're looking for. But they do have that sense of humor, which the older I've gotten, the more I've realized how important of a factor that is. And I think they have very similar values and morals. Um, They're different religions. And in a lot of ways, I would say they're opposites, but they have at their core, they're very similar. Um, and I, I just see every day that they want to make each other better. They want to make sure the other one's informed. They talk about current events all the time and try and stay relevant. And it, it's it's beautiful to see something like that that has lasted so long.
5: Hmm.
2: So um, I want to come back to that. But I have to ask yeah. you about this uh, love affair that you have with horses. Um that seems like a very strange backdrop for everything else going on here, particularly in the heart of Silicon Valley, where you grew up.
1: Oh, isn't it just the weirdest thing? And it's even weirder because I grew up in San Francisco proper. So oh wow, I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Um, the last place you would ever think that people would ride horses. And there was one stable in the city that I went to a summer camp at when I was eight years old. And my love for horses just started then. And I was the most fearful rider you could ever imagine. Like, I don't think I got on the horse for the first year. But for some reason, I was just determined to learn how to do this and spent all my time researching about horses and, you know, watching videos and doing everything I could to try to learn how to overcome this fear that I had of riding and try to figure out some way to just figure out how to be with these animals that I so badly wanted to have a relationship with. Um, And so as the stable closed, I ended up having to drive further and further out to pursue that passion um, to the point where now I spend easily two hours a day in the car um, going to see the horses every single day. Um, And it blossomed into this huge passion that became a business that I run with my mom in addition to the to the podcast, we have a business buying and selling horses, and I compete almost every week. Um, even with COVID, it's starting to be back to normal a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's an obsession. It's not even just a passion; it's an obsession. <laughs> I don't even know what my life would look like without the horses.
2: Okay, so the way that you talk about horses sounds a lot like the way that I've talked about surfing and snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like what happens when you get on a horse that makes it this way for you um or for anybody and you know like what is it, it like what are the things that we don't know because i mean to me like i see horses and i think you know zorro like that's my mm-hmm, yeah, ex- the extent yeah. of my understanding is oh yeah. old movies where people are riding horses and you know fighting on uh-huh. swords and all sorts of crazy shit like that but you obviously have your firsthand experience with it so what is it that draws people to horses the way that you're drawn to it what is the, the feeling of it you know when you're on a horse
1: I don't even know if I would say that it's something you feel as a whole with every animal that you get on so much as it is learning each horse's personality and then realizing they have their quirks and they have their strengths and you get to work together to figure all of that out together. And it's really building a partnership with an animal that you can't talk to. They they can't talk back and you're trying to figure out how to do things that are crazy together. I jump horses and so the idea that two different beings can go around and jump a course of jumps and make it look easy when they really can't communicate is just beautiful and it's amazing and every horse is so different um and that's really what the challenge is for me that after all these years it's not like you can have it figured out on all horses. You can't even have it figured out on on one. Even my long-term partners, are, I still learn so much about them all the time, but they're they're just fascinating and they're really unique uh on the ground too when you're just hanging around them. They're really funny. Uh my family's had the same pony. This is like a pet. It's not an investment that I've had since I was a little a little girl and she's hilarious. She still makes me laugh every day.
2: Uh, so this might be a weird question, but uh... You know, you take the ability to communicate with an animal who can't talk back. I wonder how that influences your ability to communicate and connect with uh people in your life.
1: That's really interesting and I've actually never thought about it that way, but I think it's made me a better listener. Um I also have a real passion for rescuing senior dogs who gosh, you wish you could understand what their story was before they came to you, especially since so many of them were abused, but yeah, it does make you a better listener. And, and I think you have a curiosity about what happened to you. And why did you become the way you were, and you're never going to hear the answer. But it's interesting to try and figure it out on your own.
2: Hmm. So um, walk me through sort of the trajectory of sort of that first spark of, you know, falling in love with broadcast journalism to what you're doing today. Like, what was the path to getting here?
1: I really would not have had any interest in doing a podcast of my own were it not for an experience that I had in an abusive relationship that made me really try to figure out who I was as a person and have this obsession with trying to become a better person. And I turned to all these podcasts and books on self-help, self-improvement and entrepreneurship books. I mean, just trying to figure out how to be a more successful and happy person. And it was from becoming obsessed with those things that I decided I wanted to figure out how I could put my own take on it and help other people um, figure out how to get out of similar situations.
2: Hmm. Well, so um, I want to go deeper into this. So one, I wonder how your parents' relationship Influence your own relationship choices. And I know when you wrote in, um, you said a lot of people are often in abusive situations without even realizing it. How do we even get in? How do you find yourself in such a situation like that? Because you don't seem like a likely person to end up in an abusive relationship.
1: I don't. And I've gotten this question a lot. And it's very difficult to answer because I don't know the answer myself. I can only speculate as to why. I think that I've always been somebody who has tried to see the best in people and has been very innocent in a lot of ways, in terms of just thinking that people will do the right thing. And if you treat somebody well, that they're going to treat you well back. Um, and in the situation that I was in with my relationship, things just seem to happen slowly, things seem to change slowly, um, I became abused slowly. And so when you look at it, day to day, it didn't seem like there was a very big change. But when I look back at it, I see how crazy it really was. And I wonder, God, how did it go from this great relationship or, or so I thought to something that ended up being almost deadly? And, you know, you, you really can't get the answer to that. And it, it's just so frustrating to try and even think about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I guess, you know, um, so how do you even get out of the situation like that? I mean, outside of ending the relationship, because I know there are people, you know, what I've heard, even in COVID, like abusive relationships um, are really, really struggling because a lot of these people don't even have anywhere to go because of the current situation we're in. Um, And also, you know, what role did your parents play in helping you get out of this?
1: Yeah, that's what's really sad is with COVID right now, I've been really interested in hearing about how many women are struggling even more because now they're with their abuser all the time. And if they had friends who were maybe looking out for them and could see how their body language was and and how they were reacting in person, they can't tell that on the phone or even in a Zoom call in the same way. Um, And I think one of the keys to getting out of of a relationship like this is that you need to have somebody around you who notices changes in your behavior. I think that was something that was really key for me. Um, my parents actually did not know anywhere near the extent of the abuse until I was out of the relationship and I had gone to the police. They they had no idea. But I did have a couple friends who knew and who were able to see that I was becoming Uh, fearful. And in in my relationship, it involved stalking as well. And I was really paranoid about where the guy would show up. He was showing up at a lot of places I was at and um, my personality was changing. So I think that was a real way for them to, to figure it out. Um, And I think that another really scary thing that I've thought about with COVID relationship, sorry to, to take it back to that, is I've wondered to myself, say these women do want to get out and they want to get help. I, I just don't even know how they would take the first step because if, they're, uh, if their partner's monitoring their phone or if they're reading their text messages, it's not like you can text one of these groups that can try and help you. I I feel just so sorry for women who are dealing with this right now. And that's one silver lining to being silver to being single during all of this i guess <laughs> yeah. is that i i don't need to to worry about that but um yeah yeah i i think that i knew if my parents were to know the extent of what was going on especially with them living in the same city they live like 15 minutes from me i thought that they would try to um I don't know. I had this idea that they would try me, try to force me to end the relationship, and I didn't want that. So I think that's why I kept it private from them. Um, And I I still wanted them to think that the guy was really a great guy. I I don't know why I did though.
2: So you, so did you? uh, Just to clarify, you didn't want to end the relationship, or you didn't want them to tell you to end the relationship?
1: I didn't want them to tell me to end it. But at the same time, I was also in that abused mentality of thinking that somehow I had d- done something wrong and I deserved to be abused and I was desperate to be in this relationship, which I, I know that sounds really messed up, but that's where I was.
2: Mm. So when you come out of something like this, um how how do you one how do you heal? But even more importantly, How do you begin to trust people enough again to open yourself up to the possibility of something better? Because I'd imagine that, you know, this probably has done a number, like going into any date, any situation with this as sort of your backdrop, it must create challenges that the average person doesn't necessarily have.
1: It really does. And it's actually been a a real, I don't know, it's been a real journey for me since then. Um, to trust people. Like you said, it's been very difficult. And so what I try and do, I have this journal that I keep of just random moments of kindness that I've seen from people to remind myself that people can be really good and they can be who I thought that this guy was when I first met him. And so for example, on the day that I decided to leave the relationship um and and get help from the cops who were another story not very helpful um when I decided to seek out help. Um I found just the absolute best in people from a woman's organization, a, a woman's shelter who were so kind and helpful. And they said that there was going to be somebody else for me and this guy was going to be some somebody that I would look back on and say, thank God I didn't end up with him. Um, and so I'm still waiting for that perfect one to, (laughs) to show up (laughs) still waiting, but you know, there, there have been, I, at the same time, I've had some relationships since then that have, um, I mean, they've certainly been a lot healthier. I think that it's just been harder for me to completely let my guard down, but I know that's, I know that's going to happen very soon. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it.
5: I
2: I wanted to go back to what you said about the police not being helpful, because I've heard that this is the case in not just abuse situations, Mm -hmm. but in numerous situations where law enforcement is effectively useless, even though that's their job. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, given sort of what we're seeing in the news with law enforcement, um, I mean, having had this experience, like what kinds of reforms do you think need to happen uh, for people not to end up in situations like yours, particularly in the case of law enforcement? Because we've had a lot of people you know, who've been law enforcement professionals here, and I've also had people who've served time here. And the thing that you look at is just how screwed up the legal system is. Like I remember we had a a criminal defense attorney who became a chocolate maker, and he told Mm -hmm. me, he said, people – plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit all day long, because if they don't, they're going to end up with a much longer sentence simply because they can't afford the legal protection.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, it, you know, it's It's completely crazy what is going on, obviously, in today's world. And I think for domestic violence victims, it's really sad. And my experience opened my eyes up to what actually goes on when you go and contact the cops for help on your own as a young girl. Um, I thought it would be one of these things where I would go into the police station and they would be saying, Oh, you poor thing. We're going to go and get him and we'll help you in every way possible. And that I would be believed. And I had the absolute opposite experience. Um, I showed up to the police station. Absolutely a mess. I was in tears. I, I, was told I needed to fill out a form. I was the only person in the police station. And there were three people that were working behind the desk. And I'm seeing these officers who are just messing around in the background. And after an hour, I finally went up to the front and I said, Hey, you know, when is somebody going to come out and talk to me? And they're like, Oh, you know, you need to wait. Well, I mean, what was I waiting for? So, so finally, finally, somebody came out and it was some new cop who said to me, he read my form and it just sounded like the guy was an ass and offered me a ride home. And I was really surprised by that. And, and more than anything, I felt really hopeless because I thought, well, if I'm not believed by the cops, then I don't, I don't have another option. I've done the most extreme thing. This is, this is what I thought was betrayal to the guy. Um, this was me being vulnerable and, nothing, nothing happened. And, and that really needs to change because, because you're going to have these victims who are going to be afraid to tell their stories and to be honest about what's going on. So they're not going to come forward. And then you're going to have more instances of injuries, both emotional and physical. I mean, there is so much abuse that goes on emotionally in these relationships that, i think can be a lot more damaging than the physical abuse and it, it needs to be something where we don't need to feel this is something i've really felt is that uh, there's an element of shame to being a domestic violence victim um and you know not not to get too honest here but this has been something that i've had serious discussions with with my mom about was when i decided to Talk about my story to say what happened, she said, "Oh well, you're going to have guys who aren't going to want to go out with you because they're going to think you come with baggage because of this." Well, that's exactly what needs to stop is people thinking that this is baggage. Why should the women be feeling or or men men can be victims as well, but why should the victim be feeling like they have this coat of shame to wear around because they tried to believe the best in somebody and were taken advantage of?
2: Yeah. Wow. Um so you know I asked you about how you how you start to heal and, and trust people. What I wonder also is I'd imagine this does a huge number on self-worth and it, how do you begin to recover a sense of self-worth when you've gone through something that has been so damaging to your self-worth?
1: I think like I said I watch <laughs> watch a lot of TED talks. I um <laughs> listen to a lot of podcasts. I I don't have the answer for that yet. I do gratitude journaling. I, I just think a lot of the healing process for this has to do with coming in contact with people who you can trust and who have your best interest at heart and just realizing there are more of those than there are of people who are extreme abusers. And it's an everyday struggle. I know this because I've talked to to other victims An everyday struggle to try to move on from what happened. And I don't think there's such a thing as moving on completely. And I don't know if there really should be because it's such it's such a part of you. And I think it's given me a sense of empathy for people that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, Yeah.
2: So this is this might be an odd question, but what do you think men who are just average guys like me who not abused anybody, and have no intention to misunderstand, mm-hmm. just based on what we see in news and and like what misperceptions uh about domestic abuse do you think the media creates?
1: I think that and this is what i'm gonna answer this based on what I thought um happened in domestic violence situations. I always thought that the woman was weak um and i I know that's what men think as well is that the woman was weak and people always ask the question, why didn't she leave? So I think that you have these guys who are wondering, well, if she's not damaged in some sort of way, why would she put up with that? Or is she a liar? Did it really happen because she shouldn't have stayed if it went to if it was as bad as she said it was? And I think you have guys too who just think that, you know, the girls are gonna carry the weight of this for the rest of their lives and want to be a victim or in my case want to be an advocate for victims and be very passionate about it and i think in a lot of ways men want to show to their friends their family that they're with this perfect girl who doesn't have a past even though the past is what adds a sense of depth and and wisdom and character
2: yeah wow i so this is another question. So I think that for me, you know, it's funny because we're talking about self-improvement, listening to podcasts. And you know, I, I just published this piece on Medium uh, titled The Skeptic's Guide to a Good Life. And and that mm-hmm. literally came from a conversation I had with a friend who described Unmistakable Creative as a skeptic's guide to a good life, because I don't just want to take things at face value and, and let people spout inspiring bullshit um, without mm-hmm. anything to back it up. Uh, mm-hmm. But You know, I think self-improvement is one of those things that we resort to, and sometimes to a point where it becomes sort of just an obsession in and of itself that doesn't lead anywhere. Yeah. Uh, So one, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. But another question around this is, you know, some people let their past inform their future. Other people let it define the future. Why do you think that happens when what do you think is the difference between those two
5: people?
1: Yeah. um, I want to answer that question first. I I had a thought about it. Um, I think that the difference between informing and defining is what you're, you decide to do about it. And it doesn't have to do with, was the abuse worse for the person who allows it to define them versus the one who allows it, allows their past to inform their future. I think that it has to be a really conscious decision and one that involves so much bravery to say, I'm not going to let my abusive relationship be the rest of my life. Rather, I'm going to let it inform me. So I don't have, I'm not just this naive girl like I was in the past, but at the same time, I do understand people better. I have my guard up. Um, you learn to trust your gut a little bit more. And I've kind of done it both ways myself. And I did let it define my my future for, for really too long. And that wasn't giving me great results. Um, and to your other point, listening to a lot of self-help, a lot of it wasn't beneficial for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of it wasn't. I mean, I would have just people would make fun of me because I'd have a constant stream of positive talks and and shows on. I mean, in my ear, I would be just listening on my AirPods while I was riding. And when I was home, I would just have YouTube on in the background, just, you know, speeches by Matthew McConaughey, just all these different things on all the time to try and just put positivity into my mind. But I think you really need to find one person who resonates with you and really focus on what they have to offer rather than just Listening to a ton of people and getting confused, because they all really cancel each other out at the end of the day, or most of them do. Um, I mean, yeah, they, they all have, have, you know, been through something that's made them passionate about wanting to share their message with other people. But just because they have a good message, and they've had an interesting past doesn't mean that it's yours.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate that because I think that, you know, I, I jokingly said, I was like, if I could actually incorporate every piece of advice I've given gotten from a podcast guest, I'd be a billionaire. I'd have six pack abs and have a harem <laughs> yeah. of women. Um, but I none of those things true. are true about my life. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it, it's, it's yeah. bizarre. Uh, and I, I realized at a certain point that uh, when I was thinking about the people that I interview, That I had to take, you know, what I could from each one and come up with my own recipes um, using their ingredients. And I think that there's so often this tendency, and I see this over and over and over um, in sort of the world of self-development, all of that is to treat guidance as gospel. Where we mm-hmm. literally say, "Okay, yeah. this person has authority. Uh, this person is famous. This, you know, this person has status. So what they say suddenly becomes more credible, and I should see that, you know, absolutely as word that I should trust." So, you know, anytime I hear the words "everybody should," I'm like, "Okay, right now this is a sh-. this is." Anytime somebody says that, I think you should be skeptical because there's nothing yeah. that everybody should do.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that a lot of people that do have the tendency to worship these motivational speakers as gods and to an extent I I have done that and continue to do to some extent with Tony Robbins I think the world of him and I've gone to a bunch of his events um but and it's all the information is super fresh in my mind right after the events and maybe for a couple months after but then I haven't been to one of his events in a year and a half at this point and I feel like what I learned and how strong i felt after has has largely dissipated and that's been really disappointing for me and trying to relive what i experienced at his conference hasn't it doesn't help to just watch these videos online of what happens at the conference or to try to watch i am not your guru on netflix you know you can't really relive the moment and somebody like tony robbins that's not the answer it's not just one person that's the answer. Yeah. I mean, I I think he has a lot of great advice and I do watch him more than than just about anybody else. But at the same time, he's not God. And you're right. So we do worship these people unfairly in a lot of ways. Well,
2: you know, I, I think that we overlook the fact that they have character flaws. And I, I, this is why I had asked you this as somebody who was, you know, a, a victim of abuse in a relationship. When you see somebody like Tony comment on a Me Too moment, what do you think? Because I mean, I, I know that really that. got him about a backlash. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, I was there at that conference. Um, with that. And I do think that was taken a little bit out of context. I wasn't so struck by what he said and, and angry. I know a lot of women were but I think when the video came out and everything. Um, I think that woman kind of wanted her 15 minutes. Um, I understood what Tony was saying. And that it discredits a lot of people who really have been victims by everybody coming forward and saying that they were me too, um, if they really weren't. And to say, like, okay, somebody who had a their boss said that they look good in a dress or something like that, to say that's to the extent of what I experienced of, you know, being suffocated and, and attempted drowning and everything. It, it's not the same. And so that's where I think Tony's point was was also that having a victim mentality is not beneficial to have all the time. And and I actually learned that from him. And, and um, to the extent that you don't have that have to have that happen, I think it's good. I don't think the victim mentality helps people.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because you reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, a dating coach that I worked with, uh, Nick Notice, who's also been a guest here. Mm -hmm. And I remember at, at the time we had him, like this was all starting to basically become very, very prominent in the media. And, you know, his clients said that like he literally was having trouble because his clients were terrified even to kiss somebody on a date because they were so afraid. And he said, you right. know, the reality is, he said, if there's no initiation, he's like, you're not going to have relationships form without some semblance of intimacy. And uh, that really always stayed with me uh, because and it even made me think back to like bad dates where I'm like, uh, you know, you quite you like many of my male friends were like, oh, we question our own behavior in certain moments. It's like, damn, was that a moment in which we could have been accused of something?
1: Right. And something that's made humanity so beautiful has been the fact that Intimacy comes naturally and maybe it doesn't right now with COVID and everything and everybody keeping their distance and and that's fine. But in the past, it's been really nice to spontaneously be able to touch someone on the shoulder or give somebody a hug and not question yourself. And I think that's been really the shame of the Me Too movement and for guys like you and your friends and the moments that really shouldn't be overthought have had to become overthought and it it just shouldn't be that way and I think some of the best moments that I, I don't know that I've had even in my horseback riding relationship with my instructors have been when they've put their arm around me or they've put their hand on my knee when I'm on the horse about to go in and it's it's been moments that now somebody would probably say oh my gosh that's inappropriate but it it just made me feel supported
2: wow Let's just, I want to wrap up with something a bit more lighthearted. Uh, you know, you host a podcast with your mom, and you mentioned part of what prompted this uh, journey was the abuse situation. First, I have to ask you about the dynamics of hosting a podcast with a parent, because I think I would probably want to shoot myself if I had to host a podcast with my mom. <laughs> um, we would just be arguing the whole time.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I think my mom and I had a lot of experience together because my mom and I have just we've naturally been close and she and I have had this whole experience since I was eight years old doing the horses together and since I was 16 having a business together so we knew how to work together but I I have to be honest it was not my idea at the beginning to work with her I wanted to go and do a show but I actually tested it out with a couple of male co-hosts and then my mom said to me You know, I think this would be a really interesting dynamic, and I've wanted to get back into broadcasting. So, so why don't we try this? And for the most part, it goes well, and that we have our own roles with the show, and we we don't really step on each other's toes, and we know those. But to say that it's like a seamless process would be a complete lie. And we, I I certainly have times when I get very angry and um at her, and it's difficult. But luckily, at the end of the day, we both have the same goal of just. Really wanting to bring a message of hope to people and and being really on the same page um, in terms of the the goal, so it ends up working out well. But it's not it's not the easiest.
2: Okay, well, I'm not going to lay off the hook that easily. What, what are the the moments of what are the things that have caused conflict between you guys?
1: Um, I would say, God, I, I'm I'm gonna just say what has bothered me and that all these I'll be, I'll <laughs> and be then saying your mom her, is going like, to listen to this <laughs> and, 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 yes exactly she has her own side to this and, and she really should my mom is wonderful with responding to emails and outreach and really doing things that quite frankly I don't have the attention to do I have ADHD and I'll be somebody who will reach out and then I'll get a response, but then when it comes to booking times and everything, I get overwhelmed and I don't follow through as much. And so she's great with that, but then I'll get angry with her if I feel like I'm spending too much time editing a show or working on social media, um, because that's something that she doesn't do now. Um, So so it really just has to do with the role division. And again, I would say it's more on my end. My mom has so much patience, and she is such a veteran in broadcasting and has won all these awards and everything that I really can't get mad at her for anything she does wrong cuz she's so much more experienced than me but you know it's a mother daughter thing i mean i i have to try as the daughter right <laughs> i get under yeah. her skin a little bit
2: so i have to ask as as the daughter of somebody who has won all these awards do you ever feel at moments you're kind of living in a shadow
1: i have and i've certainly felt that with my dad too because his career has been, um, more relevant in my life. My mom, uh, quit her job to be a stay at home mom when I was six. So a lot of the stuff that she won, she, you know, I wasn't really aware of at the time. And whereas with my dad, you know, I've gone to a lot of these these events that my dad's been getting, uh, awards at. And so I, I do feel like to an extent there's there's been that, um, especially being the daughter of both of them, um, I get that all the time from people at the station with my dad that I, I don't really feel like I have my own identity necessarily. It's I'm Ron and Jan's daughter, um, and that's been that's been something that I think has motivated me more than anything to try and create my own path and say, hey, I'm not doing this, and just because my parents have been successful in radio and broadcasting before that what I'm doing is really unique to, um, how I feel about the world and how I feel I can best contribute to, to people. So I think with more shows that we've done and now we're close to 300, um, I've started to feel a lot more comfortable in my own skin and, uh, I have a lot more belief in myself.
5: Yeah. So
2: uh, you mentioned a sister earlier, uh, and I, I, there's no way I wanted to get out of this conversation without asking about her, like what role does she play in all of this, anything, or is she just listened and kind of watch you guys from the sidelines and laughing Uh,
1: she's she is the best we've had her on a couple times and she's absolutely my confidant and she's really into to motivational you know videos and and books as well and she's amazing she has a huge job in advertising but on the side she's also trying to become a personal trainer just because she really wants to help people with their appearance and looking better means you feel better on the, on the inside. So she has the same basic message. She just conveys it in a different way. Um, but she has said many times that she thinks it would be very difficult to, to work um, the three of us together. We thought at the beginning, it'd be <laughs> great to have all of us do it. And I don't think she could do it. She doesn't have experience working with my mom um, in the same capacity for, for so many years um, but you know she's she's just wonderful she's she has helped me so much through um uh, the issues that I've had with my relationship um with my abusive relationship and relationships afterwards and has helped me become somebody who feels like they can help other people so it really is very much due to her <laughs> uh,
2: so uh, i have two final questions uh, one what role has The have the people that you've gotten to speak to uh, played in your own healing Uh, because I I can honestly tell you I'm a very different person ten years after starting this show than I was uh, when I did and you know like it definitely changed my values it changed the way I thought about the world so I wonder in what ways has your own creative work changed you and helped in this path to healing?
1: Our show was started on the basis of trying to figure out how people got through their tough times so I think that. I've been really helped by just realizing that successful people had struggles since on the surface, it seems like they've just been successful. They haven't gone through anything. Um, and so to see people display themselves warts and all has really me become, uh, somebody who, who has a better understanding of People and it's interesting that you say you're you're not the same person as you were before because I feel I feel that same way that just having in depth conversations where people really bare their soul gets you to know just the world and who we are and that people have so much more good to them than we give them credit for and I think it's really easy when you've had a negative experience with a person it doesn't have to be an abusive relationship like I had, I mean, it could be a bad upbringing or, um, you know, depression or something. It's, it's really refreshing to be able to hear a podcast where, people, you know, you're hearing people talk more than just in a two minute interview and they come off as real. I, I think yeah. that it's, it's more relatable.
2: Hmm. Well, um, I want to wrap with my final question, which is how we finish all our interviews, uh, at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is? that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's not being afraid to show your scars. I think that that's something we are all really struggling with. I think that the pandemic has made us all rethink the fact that we need to show appreciation for our fellow Mankind here, but I think that we need to remove the stigma of victims being i i mean we, we we still have with the black lives matter movement victims don't have something wrong with them the shame shame needs to be i I'm thinking back to to brene Brown and everything i I learned from listening to her for so many years um we We just need to remove the shame. We need to be proud of who we are and encourage each other to be the best versions of ourselves that we can while also being genuine. And that's what makes somebody unmistakable.
2: Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and everything that you're up to?
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been such an honor to talk with you as somebody who's been a longtime listener. Um, And you guys can find out more about the show that I host with my mom, Nobody Told Me, at nobodytoldmeshow.com. And you can check out my personal Instagram, which is Laura M. Owens. Um, And yeah, you can keep up with us on every platform. Very active.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.